Right, good morning everyone. Welcome to Engineering Maths Part 9. Uh, this is uh, finishing off my part of the Engineering Maths course. L last... There. There. Um, so, last time we looked at uh, nonlinear equations, computational methods for solving them. In general, I said that nonlinear equations could emerge from various different uh, parts of the course, uh, integration or differential equation solving or whatever. And I said that in general, uh, nonlinear equations are potentially difficult to solve, um, at least algebraically. Uh, so this is my visual cue for today's lecture. Uh, these two terrifying monsters are to remind me uh, that uh, it's potentially very difficult to solve two or more nonlinear equations simultaneously. And uh, bonus points if you can tell me uh, which game this picture is from. Metroid. It is, but which version? That's harder, isn't it? <laughs> hmm. Very good. Um, right, uh, as I suggested last year to me that this was a game, oh, which I remembered from my childhood. Uh, I'm actually older than that. But anyway, um, what we did so far. Solving f of x is zero. Uh, general approach was that we first of all try and uh, sketch the function that we're worried about and get an initial guess for x when f of x is zero, and then we do iterative improvement. We looked at Newton-Raphson. I said I would recap the two other methods, successive substitution and interval halving, uh, but really what I want to do is to be able to solve uh, two equations, f of x of y is zero and g of x is y of y is zero, simultaneously. Uh, so uh, getting them both equal to zero by finding a suitable x and y, uh, which in some cases is going to be possible. Um, and then I'll do a, a recap of what I think is important uh, as part of this course and which things are not important for you, which you will probably want to know. So on page 39, uh, I said I would recap this iterative solution by successive substitution. Sometimes if you have your f of x equals zero, you can rearrange it into a form x is equal to g of x by somehow pulling across an x. Um, what does this mean? Uh, this means you have a, an, an, ob an, an obvious to write down, but not obvious that it works, method for solving this equation where you can say I've got my x1, my first guess, and I'll say my x2 is just this function g of x1. And slightly surprisingly, there are cases when this does actually work uh, very well. And those cases are if you have a shallow curve, this shallow g of x function, and if it's a gradient, if the absolute value of its slope with respect to x is less than 1 near the solution, and this diagonal line is just y is equal to x, uh, to show you g of x here is shallower, uh, then you have the case that your... Uh, g of x is always closer to the solution than the initial x. And you can see, uh, starting from an imaginary x1, uh, which is too low for the solution, that intersection is the solution, uh, you can see that uh, applying this method is going to get you closer to it until you have uh, a, sa a satisfactory answer. Uh, that is not, however, the case if your g of x is, has, a, has a gradient steeper than 1. Uh, because in that case, you can imagine starting here at x1, and your, uh, because this uh, g of x is steep, the evaluating it gives you an answer which is further away 
uh, from the intersection. So you can eyeball those sketches and convince yourself that's true for initial guesses of x which are below the answer. And if you look at it a bit more, you can also confirm to yourselves that's going to also be true for x values which are above the answer. That is, assuming that your function g of x is reasonably nicely behaved, uh, by which I mean it, it's a continuous curve, and it does something nice near the solution, like it just increases with x. If it was a hideous function with um, singularities in, then you'd, you'd be out of luck. But assuming near the solution it behaves nicely, uh, then successive substitution can work, but you need to check somehow for the slope of g of x being sufficiently small. Okay. Um, if we apply the successive substitution to this test problem that we had, so equation 4.1c was some uh, test equation. If we take our initial guess of v, which was for some reason 3.07-ish, uh, we apply this uh, successive substitution and it gets us to a, it pretty quickly gets you to an answer um, 3.2-ish. And this is a good answer. It doesn't get you there quite as quickly as the Newton-Raphson method in this example, but both of them are good methods for answering this problem. Uh, so from your initial guess down there, or down there, uh, it very quickly uh, gets closer to your correct answer. So that's a good property to have. Interval halving, uh, I said, is a nice robust method, so you can rely on this uh, if, you have the, if you have a nice case where you can apply interval halving, at least it's reliable. Uh, the idea is that you not just have an initial guess, x1, uh, but you start off with uh, a lower and an upper bound, x1 and x2, and you know that your uh, answer is somewhere between them. So all you do in interval halving is evaluate the function at the midpoint. Uh, we call it uh, x3. Oops. And then you invent a new halved interval, and you select this midpoint of the first range to be either the lower or upper bound of the new range, uh, so that the new range is half as wide, but definitely still contains the solution. So in this case, uh, you'd choose your uh, x3 to be the upper bound and keep the same lower bound as before, and then you'd zoom in on this correct answer. Uh, so this would be a very nice. It would be uh, guaranteed to work, again, assuming you have a well-behaved function which is continuous and it has one solution near the, in the range that you've found as your starting point. So you have to do some thinking or some algebra before you start uh, nonlinear equation solvers, but once you've done that, um, if you can do interval halving, it's reliable. Um, and then I had some comments. Convergence criteria. You do need to have a reason to stop solving nonlinear equations, uh, and typically you have some value epsilon, uh, like 10 to the minus 6, and you say, I'm looking for f of x equals 0, but I will be satisfied uh, that I've got a cor the correct x as long as the absolute value of x is smaller than 10 to the minus 6 or something. Okay. Uh, so then this slide, which I'll put up on the... I will eventually put all of these up. I'll do it later on the Moodle. Uh, you've got newton raphson successive substitution interval halving. Uh, you've got some pros and cons. 
Uh, I've just described those for the last two. Uh, remember the Newton-Raphson, we were making the assumption that the function was well described as a straight-line approximation, so that from a starting point you can repeatedly make straight-line extrapolations, uh, and you can get closer to a correct solution, f of x equals zero. Um, that a disadvantage is that you have to somehow be able to differentiate the function. And we looked at an example of trying to solve uh, e to the x minus 1 equals 0, uh, where we, sh we found that it isn't necessarily a very good method because it can sometimes be slow. In other cases, it can be actually very good. Right. So then here we have uh, problems with iterative solutions to nonlinear equations. Um, slow convergence is one. So we're thinking about these just for function of x, just a single variable. Slow convergence, when you had e to the x minus 1 equals 0, you're looking, you should be finding the solution x is 0. But because of the steeply curved nature of the exponential, your iteration only improves your answer, it only moves by one until you get close to the correct answer. So even interval halving would be faster if you could do it for that problem. Uh, choice of iteration variable. So you can make bad choices when you're doing nonlinear equations. Uh, this shows you for what's actually not too bad a function. Y is 1 over x minus 1. Uh, we're looking for the solution uh, x is 1 to give us this expression equals 0. We start from, say, first guess x1 is 0.4. Uh, then newton raphson will give you these uh, progressive steps towards the correct answer. But just as I said earlier in the course with numerical integration, if you can do some algebra to manipulate your problem into a form where the thing is a straight line function instead of a curve, then computers will often deal, deal better. So something you can do is you can forget about this uh, y is 1 over x. Uh, let's instead invent uh, u. A new thing is uh, y is 1 over x minus 1. Let's invent u is 1 over x. So then your function becomes y is u minus 1. Uh, that's a straight line function of u. Your initial guess of x is turned into an initial guess for u, uh, which is on this plot, it's 2.5 there. And because the uh, function y is u minus 1 is a straight line function, newton raphson gets you to the exact correct answer in a single step. So the right sort of manipulation before you feed things to the computer uh, will get you better, more reliable answers. But this comes at the hideous cost of having to do more thinking and no more stuff. <coughs> but it, it could therefore be useful. Overshooting. Uh, so your computer is just dealing with numbers. It um, doesn't necessarily, if you're dealing with a number x and you're applying a change of x to get to some new value, there's nothing in that on its own which prevents you from predicting or extrapolating future values of x which are outside of some physically meaningful region. Uh, you would have to add in some check if you wanted to stop that from happening. Uh, so for example, if I have the... Uh, function I'm interested in a log of x equals 0. If I exponentiate both sides, I'm looking for x equals 1. Uh, but uh, if I have a bad initial guess, 
uh, then this might not work very well. If I have my initial guess x is 2, uh, then I can start at this point, I can make a straight line extrapolation, go back, and the computer will find the correct answer. If I have an initial guess x equals 3, then this won't work, because I have this initial point, I make a straight line extrapolation of where I think this curve would hit 0, and that happens at x is minus 0.3 or something, and then that's a horrible problem because I can't uh, produce, well, I, I, I don't want to be dealing with a version of log of x which gives me answers for negative numbers. Uh, instead, I've, I've managed to iterate my x outside of the support of the function, so there's no meaningful uh, log uh, from which I can do a straight line process with real numbers to go past this iteration, so I've just found somewhere and I've broken my method. So the same thing would happen if I was dealing with, for example, absolute pressure, and in a plant simulation I did some, I was looking for some solution, and I think, yeah, this means that absolute pressure is like minus 20 bar inside some, uh, some, react some bit of the plant. And in that case, that would be physically meaningless or wrong, and you would need to get around that. Either you would change your algorithm so that in that case it tries taking only partial steps towards what it thinks of as the correct uh, zero, or you would put in a, a hard-coded check so that if it says pressure becomes negative, then you're going to replace that with some made-up pressure becomes 0.1 bar or something, which would be a bodge to get around it, but it would stop your computer exploring uh, meaningless numbers that might break its equations. Overshooting, so a function could become impossible to evaluate. Uh, try making the step size smaller than the amount which you think you would need to get to the solution. Um, one of the ways you can get overshooting is if your function becomes a very shallow curve. And the ultimate example of a shallow curve is a curve which has a stationary point where df by dx is zero. If I end up, um, if I end up on such a point, I would, according to Newton Raphson, I would be extrapolating a step of an infinite change in x in order to make the function value equal to zero, and that would also break my solution method. So nonlinear equations, there are more things that can go wrong with these solvers than there are for some of the earlier things that we looked at. And therefore you do need to think about the problem before you feed them into the solver. Uh, one of the worst things that can go wrong, you could have no solution. Um, you always need to know that you have a solution somewhere before you ask the computer to solve it. If you ask the computer to use newton raphson to solve x squared plus 0 0.001 is equal to zero, there isn't a solution, but that doesn't stop your computer from taking uh, potentially a large number of iterations before it reports an error and says it can't find a answer which has a satisfactorily small value of f of x. Um, and this divide by oh yes, and the divide by zero error. So this is when is df by dx zero? So if you have x minus two all squared equals zero, and I want to solve that by Newton Raphson. Uh, then, if I, 
if I were to well, okay, if I were to start in this case at that's a bad example. Uh, if I were to start in this case at x equals two, uh, I would actually have the answer. But uh, I would also, if you imagine x minus two all squared minus one, uh, so that the uh, bottom point of the parabola is moved down a bit, and it's and x is two doesn't just give you zero. Uh, then starting at x is two would uh, because the curve is actually there flat, uh, you'd extrapolate an infinite step to work out your next uh, guess. So that, that that would not be that would not be what you wanted. I better change that. I better edit that. Where's my pen? Okay, good. Uh, simultaneous nonlinear equations then. So we've now talked about problems with f of x is zero. Here's a question for you to look at. Uh, can you tell me some solutions for these two equations? So I want f of x and y and g of x and y both zero. And f is x squared plus y squared minus 4 equals zero. I want f to be equal to 0, and I want g, which is x minus 2 all squared, plus y squared minus 4, is 0. Um, so questions for you. Um, can you tell me the x and y coordinates which satisfy both of those simultaneous equations? And then we'll look at, we'll go on to look at how would the Newton-Raphson method be used to solve these uh, two simultaneous equations in two dimensions. Uh, so this is the solver that I want to look at in this course for solving uh, bigger nonlinear problems than just f of x equals zero. So if you have a minute to uh, have a look at that problem and see if you can tell me suitable values of x and y. Right, good stuff. So, are you happy with the answers to these questions? Everyone's delighted. Everyone's very happy. Uh, so, what is x for my answer to these problems? It is 1, yep. Yeah. And what is y? 
Yep. Good stuff. So there's a lot of ways of solving these problems. The boring way is to expand the x minus 2 squared, subtract the equations, get 4x equals 4, x is 1, and then get y. The more exciting way is to say that both of those equations are equations for describing a circle. Uh, the top one is a circle of radius 2 centred on uh, the origin. The bottom one is a circle of radius 2 centred on x is 2, y is 0. Uh, we want to satisfy both, so we, look we need intersections of those curves. So we want those two solutions. So you can either solve your maths algebraically or geometrically. Geometrically is prettier. Uh, can Newton Raphson solve this? Oh, that was another question. What do you think? Yes. In general, yeah, uh, it, it will be able to. Um, in, oops. in general, if I start with some initial, I, I'd be starting with some initial guess for x and y, and I would be iteratively improving it. Uh, so if there's my initial guess for x and y, uh, I might want to be able to iteratively improve it until I find a solution. Um, now, the slight problem is that you might, um, depending on where your starting point is, you might not find the other solution. And a third minor problem, another minor problem, is that there is one point where you can start, uh, which is this x is 1, y is 0, uh, where it, uh, it will go wrong because the... Uh, um, it doesn't know which way to go between whether it to go to that solution or that solution. In general, uh, Newton-Raphson will be able to solve two, uh, two nonlinear equations simultaneously. Um, so let's look at the, the maths for this. Oh, and uh, so you're looking, if you do this method, uh, you're pretty quickly getting to the correct answer of 1 and then root 3. Simultaneous nonlinear equations, so 4.7a and b are two equations I want um, I want to satisfy at the same time, so I can rearrange to get them both something equal to zero. And how can I solve these? Uh, equation one is x cubed plus 0.01y is four. Next one is y squared root x is two. Well, one way you can solve these is that you can get ridiculously lucky, and you can discover that su successive substitution uh, actually does work for this. So from the first equation you can rearrange and get x is 4 minus 0.01y cubed rooted, and then you can get from the other equation y is the square root of 2 over root x, and you can iteratively, you can start with some initial guess that they're both 0, say, and you can uh, get the y1 value, and then you can get the x1 value, and so on, and that actually does uh, rapidly iterate towards uh, this uh, solution. So graphically, if you consider an xy graph, uh, what you're trying to look, you're trying to find, is where uh, those two lines intersect. Um, and it's at about, you can see for graphically, it's about 1.5 something for x, and some value for y, which you can't see because of the scale, and that's a typical problem with nonlinear equations. Uh, so, anyway, the x value is correct, and so as it happens is the y value in this successive substitution for two variables. Uh, but let's not worry about that one except to say that's roughly what the solution is. Uh, let's consider, so Newton-Raphson. 
So I want to use this method because I think it doesn't have the problem of requiring shallow functions. Uh, so if you look in your data book page 9, you can get a Taylor series for function of x and y. And in equation 4.8b, instead of writing that for f of x and y, I've generalized it to function of x1, x2, x3, up to xn. And I've just written there the, the Taylor expansion for some value at uh, initial x values plus some step size h in each of those x values. Uh, just in terms of the value at the initial point, plus the step size times the first derivative in x1, x2, x3, up to xn. So the principle of what we're doing is that with two coordinates x and y, I want to locate function 1 equals 0 and function 2 equals 0. I might want to write this more compactly as cap uh, vector f, function value, is f1 and f2, they're both equal to zero. I might want to write it that way because of the horrible reason that in many dimensions I might want to be solving this using matrix maths. The good thing about that is the computer is always solving matrix maths, which are bigger than two by two matrices. So I'm not suggesting anyone actually wants to do matrix maths, uh, but you want to tell the computer to do it. Uh, the strategy that we're taking is that we want, we have a expression Taylor series for function of initial x position plus h, the change in each of those x positions, and I'm looking for function of x, or really I'm looking for function of some future x position x plus h. This is equal to zero, which means that f1 is zero and f2 is zero. In fact, as many fi's as I like are zero. Um, in this case, I've got two function values, and I've got x1 and x2. Strategy is going to be have some starting point x1, y1, evaluate the function values f1 and f2, and evaluate all of the first derivatives. Uh, then you pretend both of those function values are linear, so the Taylor series to first order does apply uh, in x and y. And based on that idea, you extrapolate the change in x and the change in y, or change in x1 and change in x2, if you like, uh, to make f1 and f2 zero. And if your functions actually are linear, then that gets you to the correct answer straight away more likely you have to then iterate and hope that you're getting better answers each time. Okay. Uh, and on page... 43. Uh, let's look at this being applied. It's probably best if you uh, read through the notes later. Um, so suppose function of x, this vector is function 1 of x, y, function 2 of x of y. Uh, the function value at some new position x plus h, those are vectors, is the initial, the value at the initial position plus the, from the Taylor series, 
uh, we can see it's this uh, matrix of first derivatives times by the step in x and the uh, step in y. I've written x and y instead of x1 and y1 there. X, x1 and x2, sorry. x and y, you can think of them, they're your two variables. Um, this matrix of first derivatives is the Jacobian matrix, it's called. Because in this case I'm dealing with two variables, x and y, or x1, x2, and I want two functions, f1 and f2, both equal to zero, therefore the Jacobian is square, and everyone can be happy that we're looking at a square matrix, and we don't have any of the horrible problems that you might have with a rectangular one. I'm looking to make function of x plus h equal to zero, so since function of x was had some value that we obtained, what I need is to work out where this matrix times by the step size uh, gives me negative the present step, uh, the f present function values at x1 and y1. So that's the idea which I need to apply according to equation 4.8h. So this equation 4.8h is the end of the general theory, and then the rest of it is, let's take this idea and apply it to the specific example that I had. So it's equations 4.7a and b. So I want to say I had those f1 and f2, I've <coughs> rearranged to be x cubed plus 0.01y minus 4 is 0, etc. with my initial guess that x and y are both 1. Uh, at this initial point, I can evaluate the functions, and I can get algebra for the first derivatives in equ the equations 4.8j. So I have algebra for the first derivatives, but then I can compute the actual numerical values at this initial point for the first derivatives with respect to x and y. And I have uh, in, in equation 4.8kk, this is because I don't use, um, this is because I don't use proper referencing uh, software because it's too much pain to make it work. Uh, so this is an equation that I've inserted in. Um, I get, the point is I have the numerical values of the f1 and f2, and I need them both to be made zero, and I have the numerical values of the, of the four first derivatives at this first guess position. And 
then I just need to apply this idea that I'm solving. I want my uh, I want to find some step in x and a step in y, so that the derivatives times by those steps uh, cancel out the in the, the function values at the starting point. And uh, we're assuming that a linear approximation of the functions is acceptable. Uh, to solve this matrix equation 4.8L, you can either, if you're on MATLAB, tell MATLAB to just use, for example, uh, so you're looking for JH is equal to F, so you can just left multiply by inverse of J if you can tell your computer to do the matrix inverse. That's actually an awful way of solving the problem. Uh, you can uh, tell the computer to solve directly jh equals minus f and uh, it, it will be a bit more efficient than computing the inverse matrix and then left multiplying that doesn't really matter you could also on paper just solve these simultaneous equations because it's a small problem so 4.8l corresponds to those simultaneous equations which I could solve and then I get my hx and my hy and then so with those I find a new x and y position. So that having been done, I would then, if it was a computer program, tell the computer program to repeat until the uh, solution converged or met some condition to stop, uh, stop trying to improve the guess. As a triplus exam, you probably do one iteration and then say, well, that's proved that I can do the relevant algebra or not. And so, <coughs> uh, so you'd probably only do one iteration on paper if you wanted to show you understood it in principle. But uh, that's the, the method that would be done repeatedly on the computer until you reach the end condition. Okay. Good. I think I put on this slide, so it says end of handout. Um, oh, and there's a comment. There are other ways of solving these equations because those are not very difficult toy problems. Uh, so that you can, you can in this case, you can actually eliminate one variable with some manipulation. And then you're looking for the solution to a nonlinear equation in one variable, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, good. Um, but Newton-Raphson is the way that you should learn for doing uh, things in things of two two functions of two variables. Um, so in this lecture, we've then finished looking at nonlinear equations and their problems. Uh, next time, oh, good news! You've got um, so Vasily will take over for linear algebra uh, in the next lecture. Uh, so you'll probably want from me. You might want a summary of what I think are. Uh, the important methods for this course, uh, because some bits are core material that I do need you to know. Other bits you don't need to know. Uh, the core material I've put in, I've, I've sort of emphasised quite a bit by underlining in bold in this block up here. Um, and then at the bottom I've said some things which are not examinable. Uh, MATLAB methods are not examinable. So nothing in MATLAB that I've put on the slides or any elsewhere. Um, you don't need to be able to. You don't need to be able to program stuff for this uh, particular course. Rather, 
those are there because those are the applications of the kind of things that we look at in this course. Intro slides are not examinable. If, well, I hope no one did get the impression that I put up a slide with the wire stress function on, therefore I thought you might learn it, uh, so you do not need to. Um, or the other things that I've put in uh, for my intro slides. Um, so core material, integration, ODEs, those sorts of things about them. Optimization with Hessian and Lagrange multipliers, including sketching how they work. Uh, I avoid asking about linear programming because I don't think it works very well on paper. Uh, even though it's important on the computer. And then we've looked at these nonlinear equation methods, which are also important, uh, including in two dimensions. Uh, okay, uh, so that's enough of that stuff. Uh, so I'm not an expert on Chinese mathematics, but uh, one of my favorite mathematicians is uh, this guy, uh, Liu Hui, uh, who wrote an excellent book called The Nine Chapters on the Mathematical Art, uh, which is to um, Chinese mathematics, what Euclid's elements is to Western mathematics, and it's very good. And uh, one of the things that he did after having a moan uh, about people who couldn't handle uh, matrix calculations and explained, this is only a small part of the book, but he said, well, I've, I've invented, oh, he invented essentially two th um, 1,800 years early uh, the process of Gaussian elimination for solving matrix problems. And uh, <laughs> had a complaint about his students who said, this is a very complicated method for 200 BC or AD? I think BC, I'd have to check. Might be AD. Um, anyway, about 1800 years ago, at least, uh, complained that his students said, oh, this, this, uh, these rectangular array methods are very difficult. He says, they're not difficult at all. It's really just an array of um, positive and negative counting rods and adding them together. And it's, uh, it's not my place to criticize uh, students who lack the imagination to solve this problem. Uh, instead, uh, he has another quote, uh, that after he um, finds the value of pi to the, the highest accuracy uh, that anyone could do, uh, that anyone did um, by that point in history, he then said, well, this is enough accuracy. Um, and... Uh, We don't need to go any further, and I think this is the third example. Um, yes, he was working on also the volume of the sphere problem, which is easy if you have vector calculus, but very hard before anyone invents vector calculus. So he worked on that problem, made some quite good progress, and then said, uh, let us leave the problem, uh, which he hadn't completely solved, for someone who can tell the truth. So we shall do that with uh, this course, and then uh, what I thought I would do is I'd fill up some time uh, with some examples for you. And the examples are going to be from an important branch of maths called Interactive Decision-Making Theory. Well, that's the respectable name, uh, but it's also called Game Theory. The reason I think you should have an, uh, an awareness of this as a subject is because I'm slightly fed up with the economics modelling, which is done in, for example, 2A projects. And the econo Well, it's, I, I don't have any input on this because I've nothing to do with the projects, but the economics modelling typically involves there being a price at which some product is solved. And this is always, this strikes me as incredibly naff, and it must strike people doing the projects as a bit wrong, because if you 
have a price and you solve your problem and discover that, yes, your instant coffee plant is indeed phenomenally profitable, you should also ask the question, do not other people make the same conclusion and start flooding the market with instant coffee? Um, there's no, uh, well, there's no particularly way of solving that easily, not in the material which is relevant for the 2A project, uh, but those kinds of problems are looked at in game theory. So it's when you're making a decision, and you're not just doing optimization using the methods from this course, uh, but you're making a decision where you've done some optimization, but you realize other people are making uh, decisions which affect your result at the same time. And uh, you, 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 hope that you've, you hope that you're smarter than them, is what you hope. Uh, so an example, here's an example game. I won't show all of these. Uh, imagine that uh, you live on a nice farm, and uh, it's uh, time to harvest the wheat, and uh, you and your friend uh, may either stay in bed, or you can go and collect some wheat. In this example, I hope it's obvious that what you really want in life is to have a nice pile of wheat. So if you stay in bed, you get none. And if you go and harvest some wheat, you get two units, or three if the other person stays in bed. And your only choice is whether or not you get up. And your uh, desire is to have as much wheat as possible. And you cannot, yeah, you cannot control the other person's decision. What should one do? Well, you should make that. You should certainly think about the problem mathematically instead of just guessing the answer. Uh, you should think about this uh, matrix, this payoff matrix of what you get. Uh, you see, there are two people involved: the blue and the red uh, player, and each of them can choose an action: uh, uh, staying asleep or going and harvesting, and they get. Uh, depending on what they do and what the other player does, uh, they receive a certain amount of score, and they want as much score as possible. So game theory is basically a system where you have players, they choose actions, and they get payoffs. Uh, important concepts are information. Uh, do you know what all of the payoff matrix looks like? Uh, is it a symmetric game? If, as in this case, you can swap around the players and they still have the same choices with the same payoffs, then that's a symmetric game. So a game of plus, a game of chess played twice, uh, switching the board around between them uh, is a symmetric game. Is there a dominant strategy? Uh, in this case, there is a dominant strategy. Uh, getting up and going to do some harvesting always gets you a better score than staying in bed. And in this case, there's a one strategic equilibrium. Uh, that is to say, uh, with both people uh, getting up and going and harvesting some wheat, none of them can unilaterally change their decision to get a better outcome for themselves. So that's a strategic equilibrium. Uh, this is a nice simple game called Deadlock, which has one dominant strategy and one strategic equilibrium. A more entertaining one is uh, living in France. Uh, this is a picture of what it looks like to live in France. And here we're playing the driving game. And two groups of people can either choose to drive on the left or on the right. And what should each group do? Of course, if they can't decide, it ends up looking like France. And you have this situation. Uh, the payoff matrix for the driving game uh, looks, of course, like this. That if both contestants or both groups of people elect to drive on the left, uh, then uh, they both receive the reward of being able to get where they want. If they both decide to drive on the right, they also receive the same large reward of being able to get where they want. If they disagree, uh, then they end up in a, a tangled crash like that. Um, you can be extremely picky and tell me that driving on the right is slightly better because it's more comfortable to rest your hand on the gear stick. So that should be worth 11 points each. Um, right. 
whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is that if they, <laughs> if they drive on the same side, uh, it, then they win. Uh, in this case, there's two strategic equilibria which are mutually optimal, no dominant strategy. Uh, you need some way of working out what the other player is doing. I'm going to skip through the prisoner's dilemma because you'll have heard it before. Uh, the 66% beauty contest is a good game. Oops. Didn't mean to show you that. Everyone in the room is asked to pick a number between 0 and 100. A prize is given to the person who chooses the number closest to 66% of the mean number which is chosen by all people in the room. Have a minute to tell me what number would you pick. Oh, you're not going to get a prize, by the way. <laughs> you imagine that you're getting a prize. You can have prestige. That's probably long enough. Does anyone want to suggest some numbers that they would pick a number? 23. Huh? 23. Oh, okay. Yep, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> <coughs> uh, you'd pick 33, okay. Uh, would anyone else pick different numbers from that? 22. Yeah, yeah. 10. 10, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, zero. Zero is an excellent answer. <laughs> because, as I said, the... Um, so we iterate there, you see. So, if you answer zero, it suggests that you've analysed the problem and you've understood that iteratively with people choosing numbers in those orders, um, it looks like uh, everyone should get to zero. And therefore, you'd pick that number. This is, not only does this show you understand the problem, it also shows that you have a very high opinion of the other people in the audience. <laughs> and here, here is the problem. In practice, too high. So this game is played at economics conferences. Must be dull. <laughs> and here are some numbers that people choose. So um, you, you get a distribution of numbers, and the people who've chosen zero have overestimated <laughs> how much the other people in the room have understood the problem. In particular, my favourite person in this uh, plot is the one person who's chosen <laughs> 100. Not, uh, I mean, presumably, uh, <laughs> presumably they've done this with no expectation of winning. Uh, but, but with the expectation that it will really piss off anyone who's really cleverly thought of zero is the correct answer. Okay. Um, so the point, and numbers like 10 or 20 tend to, tend to win, depending on where you are. Uh, but it dep does depend on the other players, you see. Um, and uh, so this lets me say something about mechanism design theory or reverse game theory uh, involves designing systems to make people do what you want. Very Orwellian. Um, but here's the problem. So people are not game mechanically rational. So the personal views of the payoff matrix uh, may not be what you think. So that someone is getting some <laughs> really good psychic reward uh, from the pleasure of choosing 100 in the previous game and destroying and fucking up the system for everyone else. Nonetheless, it is used to design auctions and things. Uh, Volunteer's Dilemma uh, has a payoff matrix that looked like this. So um, if your electricity goes out in the college, then there is a public good as long as one person calls up the company to get it fixed. 
And the question is, should you bother to do that? Well, if you do, uh, as long as someone does, uh, then if you do that, then you get a benefit for some work. Uh, but the people who freeload and don't call the company uh, get some benefit for no work. So they're in the best situation. Uh, unfortunately, here there's no dominant strategy, uh, because if everyone freeloads, then there's a, a large problem that everyone sits in the dark. So this is the volunteer's dilemma. Um, and this, uh, so, so this is my opportunity to say, uh, to those people who have answered questions for my lecture course, uh, thank you, because you have, you have won the volunteer's dilemma, and you have given me answers to questions which allow me to say something, and... Uh, uh, not particularly meaning to pick on people who don't answer, uh, but, I, but I am grateful to people who have volunteered answers uh, in this course. So thank you for that. Um, okay, uh, I thought I'd end with a quote from Roger Bacon, an important guy from the start of the university era, who says, ah, and I, I quite enjoy this claim, mathematics is the gate and key to the sciences. It's very important for you. Neglect of mathematics works injury to all knowledge, since one who is ignorant of mathematics cannot know the other sciences or the other things of the world. Since, I've, since I'm teaching a maths course, I think this is an excellent and correct opinion, uh, which I recommend to you. Um, so, uh, yes, so, so I hope you uh, enjoy that. Right. Uh, good. So I will probably be doing some course or other next year. Uh, otherwise, you can watch those courses on my YouTube channel at some point. So um, you, you can see what you think of that. And I might at some point in the future do a survey on if YouTube lectures are any use or not, or the recordings that I've put on the podcast. Um, anyway, apart from that, uh, thank you very much. Thank you.